Hey everybody and welcome to episode 46 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. Pete Hodgson. Hello from rainy San Francisco. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I think I'm the only guy on this call that doesn't end in sin. We also have a special guest this week and that's Jared Richardson. Hi, this is Jared from Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. Do you want to just explain to people what you do and who you are? Uh, sure. I'm an Agile consultant. I do a little bit of coaching, but I also tend to bounce back and forth. I'll do a year or two of coaching and a year or two of coding. The last run was Ruby on Rails. Um, done a little bit of writing. My first book, uh, Ship It with the Pragmatic Programmers, is in nine languages. So that, that went well. Speak at a number of conferences. Gosh, I should have done a better job with my elevator description. <laughs> Mainly, I work with teams to find their blind spots. I'll come in for a given engagement because we need X, and then you come in and go, yeah, but you're missing Y and Z, and then we'll end up focusing on that for the next year. It's good work if you can get it. Sounds like fun. It is. It is. I, I tell people I'm lucky enough to get paid to play. There you go. All right, well, we got you on the podcast this week to talk about technical debt. Yeah, let's say it's a talk I've given for a number of years. The The title that I usually give it under is a little misleading, and I need a better word for it, but I generally call it credit card debt. And people come to the talk thinking it's about credit card processing, and I lose a third of the audience right off the bat, which is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I was taught early in, in my consulting career is that language is a tool. Uh-huh. Journalists know it. Uh, writers know it. And when we come in and say technical debt, and you try to sell the idea of technical debt to your MBA-trained manager, to a trained manager, debt's not bad. There's good debt and there's bad debt, right? Every company out there, if you look at the stock market, they're going to do a debt-to-income ratio. Debt isn't an evil word like we intend for it to be. So I try to step back from that. I'd rather not use a term for something that's considered bad when the term isn't considered bad. So I like to call it credit card debt. Credit card debt's a lot more universally reviled. (laughs) There's an arbitrary interest rate. If you've seen some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, if you have five credit cards and you start falling behind on one, the others will raise their rates because they know that you're an increased risk. If you start to pay off one, the others will raise their rates because you have money. It's a dirty little game. It's really nasty. And if you're Carrying long-term credit card debt, everybody knows it's bad. A lot of people still do it, right? Yeah. but it, it, I think that's a better analogy. So when we talk about technical debt, I'll usually refer to it as credit card debt. I've also heard it referred to, well, I guess this is more recent, but as kind of distinguishing between good debt and like subprime debt, where uh, good debt is debt you intentionally accrue as part of running your business, kind of that stuff that, that you were talking about, the debt to do-to-do ratio, and mm-hmm. the bad tech debt the stuff that's actually tech debt in the bad sense of the word is the stuff that you accrue without realizing you're accruing it or realizing that it's a bad thing, like like a subprime mortgage, I suppose. Martin Fowler has a pretty good article on that very area of it. He calls it his technical debt quadrant. He's got the deliberate versus the inadvertent. So again, if we come back to the credit card analogy, if your car breaks down and you have to get it fixed so you can go to work, you put a big repair on your credit card, but you pay it off, That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's the intentional debt, right? I'm incurring something for a release. I'm ignoring what I know I should be doing, but I intend to pay it off. Versus the people that simply live beyond their means. 
They use the credit card to eat out more often, to go to Starbucks more often, to buy things that they really can't afford. And those are the development teams who continually ignore what they should be doing. Right? If we step back to a technical debt definition, it's the things you know you should do that you don't. You feel kind of guilty about it, but you're used to living beyond your means. You like Starbucks. You like the steakhouse. So you end up spending more than you have, and that credit card sort of supplements the income, and it works fine until your development project or home budget reaches a critical mass where you realize you're spending more time patching those little, you know, what were originally small payments, and you're spending more time and money on those than you are adding new features. And that eventually takes over your budget, and you have the option to, to pay a lot or declare bankruptcy, neither one of which is much fun. When we talk about technical debt, for those that aren't familiar with it, right, some of the examples, and if you guys have any to jump in with as well, that'd be great. I always point to automated builds. Most teams I come into don't have an automated build. They think they do, or they used to, until you try to run it, and then it's not quite there. To expose that, I tend to start with continuous integration. At a CI system, watches your code. Every time you change it, it checks out the code from Git, Subversion, whatever you're using, and runs a build. So that build has to be automated. So your continuous integration system keeps the code clean, keeps it compiling. You don't have an automated build. You can't set up a CI system. Now, is there such a thing as good technical debt? I mean, I'm aware that some businesses, at least this is the justification I've heard, well, we have to get to market or we have to get things done quickly. And so we skipped writing tests or we skipped doing this or that. And, you know, so far it's working out for us. Do you intend to pay it back? That's the question. Some of the businesses, it doesn't really sound like. A lot of them don't. When my wife and I were younger, I remember one time in particular, we wanted some landscaping. And so we put it on a credit card and then we had a drought and it all died. And we felt very stupid later. Did we intend to pay it back? Yes, we did. Did we have any plan to do that? Not really. The problem that companies run into that are always living beyond their means is it eventually catches up. Whether we're talking about automated builds, automated tests, and, you know, I'm talking about unit tests and integration tests, but automated in both places, a clean decoupled architecture, which, by the way, your automated tests would help drive, whether it's taking the time to do demos for customers, whether you have a developer who's a knowledge silo because he's just too busy, doggone it, to share with the other developers on the team. So you've got this one guy or lady who, who knows everything about maybe the database layer that nobody else knows. And you're just so busy, I don't have time to pair program with you. I don't have time to do a one-on-one peer code review. So rather than get two sets of eyes on the code, we're incurring additional technical debt. And it feels affordable until that person leaves or until there's a cool new project that comes up that that person can't work on because they're chained. What they thought was helping the company has now become an anchor, keeping them from doing whatever's next. These things just slowly build. Again, it feels, it feels smart at the time. It feels like you're, you're getting more, you're getting, I mean, and you are getting more, you're getting more features. You're getting more Starbucks. You're getting more of what you want but it's at the expense of sustainability. That, to me, is the key thing, is is that sustainability, right? That sustainable pace. That's one of my pet peeves with, I think it was Scrum that originated the term sprints. It gives people who don't understand Agile, it gives, like particularly managers, start to think that part of the point of a sprint is to try and get stuff done as fast as you can to 
get done in the end of the sprint when actually we're in a marathon, right? We're in a, a multi-year marathon where a short sprint is actually going to hurt you if, if what you're aiming for is sustainable pace in the, in the long term. That's a good point. Comes right back to the language, right? Let's make sure we use language that reflects what we really want. If you're at a startup, and maybe your goal is to be acquired, and you don't want to build a sustainable business. And I know people that have that business model, and they're looking to build it and flip it in you know, a year. You might be in a position where it's okay to accrue all kinds of crazy debt. I'm not a fan of that model. You might be in a position where you are trying to get a release done because you're trying to beat a competitor to market. You have to be ready for a trade show. For whatever reason, you have to hit June 1st then it's if you're going to have a plan for repayment, right? If you're going to buy the furniture with a 90-day same-as-cash deal and there's a plan in place to have that paid off within 90 days, that's okay. Just don't make it a habit. Is it deliberate or habitual? And that's what you've got to walk, you have to keep an eye on. When you ask about good debt and bad debt, again, Martin Fowler's technical debt quadrant says, is it deliberate or inadvertent? If you made a choice and you have a plan to catch up with it, we're going to ship today, deal with consequences next month. That's one thing. Versus the inadvertent, the young, ignorant developer, for lack of a better term, just like when I was young and my wife and I were ignorant when it came to budgeting. We just spent more than we had, and it bit us. And this you'll have the same problem with software. It will not be a sustainable pace. You're living beyond your means, and you're shipping more features than your team can afford. And eventually you're going to have to pay the piper. So do you have a advice for teams who are, I, I mean, I, I, I really agree with that, that sentiment of, it, of sometimes you do need to accrue this debt, but you should have a plan in place to, to pay down your credit card or whatever. So if, you know, for financial advisors, they're always talking about ways to do that. What guidance do you give for teams on how to, how to make that plan? One of the things that I see teams really struggle with is, they say, "Yep, we know this is bad. This is a, you know, we're, we're taking some, taking on some technical debt here. We're gonna we're gonna clean it up after this deadline or release or whatever." And then they never quite get around to doing it because the business is always asking for more features. So how how can they fix that issue? The best way to pay off debt is to not accrue debt. Yeah, uh, go listen to a Dave Ramsey and everywhere he talks about living out of cash envelopes, do cash accounting. If you can't afford it. You don't get it. When you're creating stories for the business to evaluate, don't make one story or one feature that says, here's the test, here's the automated test, or here's the refactoring, and here's the feature as two different things. Make that one story. And if you present to business, this is the cost of the feature, then they'll make an accurate assessment. If you give someone who quite bluntly isn't technically qualified to tell you how important the tests are, they're always going to choose the cheaper, faster route, which will be incurring the debt. And next week, they're always going to want a different feature. They're always going to want more work. My best advice to anybody in that situation is to simply say, this particular feature isn't going to be a two-day feature and then two days of tests. It's going to be a four-day feature or points or however you happen to measure things in your org. Make it a single unit of work to do things the right way. And occasionally, if you have a a pressing release, a pressing deadline, yeah, you can cheat from time to time. But when it becomes a lifestyle, we come back to sustainability. It's not going to be sustainable. Do you like where you work? Do you like the people you work with? 
Don't put yourself in a situation where it's going to implode. Make sure it's going to last. So I agree with that. I think that's I think that's a really good sentiment. Building building the quality in, kind of you know, same as a carpenter doesn't ask you if you want five nails or ten nails. They put ten nails in because that's the safe thing to do. But there are occasions, right? Like you you know, you gave the examples of there's a trade show coming up and the CEO comes in and leans on you real hard and says, Hey, you know, I know we're gonna have to cut some corners here, but uh, it's a business, you know, it's critical for the business, blah blah blah. So at that point, how do you set yourself how do you embrace the fact that you're gonna accrue this debt but deal with the consequences and actually clean up after yourselves? Like what's some tricks to make sure that you don't just leave that debt lying around? Make a deal with your manager, stakeholder, customer, whoever the person is that's pushing. Tell them you want 20%. You'll get 10, but 10 is a good number. You want 20% of every subsequent you know, sprint, iteration, uh, marathon, mile marker, whatever you call it. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to get 10% of that time to pay the debt off. And don't refer to it as bad. Don't use the term code smells. Don't say it's inefficient. Don't use all the fuzzy words that developers use when we talk to each other. You don't talk about code smells. Managers measure money. So you present it as when we're doing maintenance, it's going to take significantly longer to add more features if this is in place. It's going to cost us more to fix bugs. It's going to cost us more time to onboard people. It's going to cost us more time to fix, to add, but try to put it as much as you can in terms of dollars because that's what the most managers are trained to understand and it's the language they speak. A lot of times we try to sell things in technical terms. We tell them that the architecture is messy. We tell them that the code smells. We tell them that things are bad and they go, so? I've literally heard business people behind closed doors mocking developers talking about their code smelling. I have heard them laughing at the terms we use. And at the time, I was really insulted. But then I stepped back and said, no, we're asking them to speak tech, and they don't speak tech. So if you're trying to get this paid off, find a way to present it as in it saves time, it saves money, it enables us, and present it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great advice. That's really, really good advice, talking to them in in their language, I know developers who have said, he's my manager, he has to reach me, she's my manager, she has to understand me. Uh, if you're the one that wants the communication, you have to reach them. Yeah, and I think also for non-technical people, it feels like they're always hearing developers talk about how XYZ is inefficient or like the code's a mess or whatever. And, and frankly, like as developers, part of our personality is we kind of strive for perfection and and are always aware of things that are suboptimal and kind of whine about them a little bit. And I think it's really important to couch this stuff in ways that distinguishes, you know, this is serious, this is going to slow us down from, oh, I really wish I had time to re-implement all this stuff because it would be fun to re- rebuild it again from scratch, you know? Mm-hmm. I- I've been told before that no developer ever comes into a code base without wanting to rewrite it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, I was insulted because I wanted to rewrite the code base I was in, and you know, it happens a lot. Yeah, I like telling developers that when they're starting on a new project, like for the first week of your, uh, you know, first week or month or whatever of this green field, you're going to love it. You should be spending all of your time trying to figure out how to keep it that green field, right? Like, and that goes back to the tech debt thing. Like, every time you take a little shortcut, you're getting closer to that stage you were in before you started this green field where you were grumpy about the big mess that your legacy code base was in. You, if you're not 
actively working to pay down this tech debt that you're accruing, then you are building legacy code for yourself. You're building your own jail, right? I like that. How to keep a green field green. <laughs> there's a good there's a good fertilizer joke in there somewhere, but uh, <laughs> I like that. So how do you resist the urge to have that to do that big rewrite instead of fixing the tech debt? I think hmm. that's a really good question because I've seen teams do that where particularly so something that I consider an anti-pattern is teams that say we need to do a um, a tech debt sprint or a tech debt something or other thing. I, I call it a, a, a functionality vacation where they're like, okay, we're going to take a vacation from doing real work because we've got all this tech debt that we we need to pay down. And what tends to happen is they pay down the stuff that they find personally irritating rather than the stuff that's actually slowing people down. So they'll spend you know 50% of their vacation cleaning up this area of the code that actually doesn't need optimizing or no one ever really works in it anymore, but it's just been really irritating everyone because, you know, oh, it's... Uh, you know, I can't believe we're still using C++ over here and we haven't ported it to Ruby. So let's spend 50% of our time porting this thing over that's solid, that works, and that no one ever needs to change anyway. I, I think that's a real challenge for teams to not get caught in that trap of like, oh, we're paying down tech debt, so we're allowed to fix whatever we want to fix. So when you do a tech vacation, who picks the features? Do you just turn the developers loose and say, go nuts, fix what irks you? That's, well, that's the risk, right? If you, I think if you do that, Without some full thought, then things are going to go wrong. I generally have a tech lead in place that would be the person who would filter that sort of thing, right? It's because of exactly what you just said. People tend to fix what annoys them, not necessarily what the team needs. I try to have the team present those and say, okay, what do you think we should work on? But I still want a big picture person there who's technically uh, competent, technically savvy that can pick and choose what the teams work on in the same way they would during a regular iteration. Yeah. I mean, I think ideally teams should avoid those kind of blocked out chunks of work, partly because of this issue of working on stuff that's fun to work on. And partly because if you present this to the business, it's, does not sound like a good deal, right? Like, hey, it, it, yes, you can couch it in terms they understand, but you're still basically saying we want to spend a week kind of sharpening our tools rather than building the functionality that you feel is, is urgent for us to build right now. Now, if you build that tech debt removal into your kind of your your standard iterations or your standard kind of cadence, then I think that you get two things there. Partly you, you're kind of getting closer to that thing of doing building quality in and not kind of accruing this thing in the first place and presenting the cost, the real cost to the business rather than the kind of discounted cost because you're running up debt in the background. And also, if you do that, you, the tech debt that you're paying down tends to be on code that you're working on, which tends to actually be valuable stuff to pay down. So that creaky old C++ code that um, no one touches anymore Yes, it, it would be great to rewrite it, but actually no one touches it anymore, so it actually doesn't, that debt isn't as painful or it's not dragging you down as much as the boring but always-in-your-face tech debt of uh, you know an, an inefficient algorithm or uh, something that doesn't use the right, I don't know, I can't think of a good tech debt example, but that's my take, is it's better to, better to kind of build this, this stuff in and, and pay down the stuff that's in your face rather than kind of sitting back and trying to decide what would be valuable to pay down. Absolutely. If you have a technical debt sprint, forget even trying to sell a, quote, vacation to management because then we're back to the language discussion again. But yeah. if you know there's a tech debt sprint kind every month, every two months, 
then it's okay to accrue debt, right? Because I know I'm going to have a time. I'll have time to fix it later, which of course will get skipped from time to time. It stays in. I don't like the assumption that we're accruing debt. I much prefer the cash accrual, the cash envelope metaphor. If you can't afford it, you don't pay for it. I know I'd love flat screen, larger flat screen TV, a 3D, whatever. But if I don't have the cash in hand, I'm just going to wait. That's a really good point. I get it. I mean, I think all of this stuff comes down to setting the right culture inside of a team, a culture of building quality and kind of frankly, being a professional. Like a good chef doesn't leave old vegetables lying around on, on his counter. He cleans up as he goes along because he knows that it's important to doing a good job. I think a good software engineer should be doing the same thing. I think it may have been stolen from someone else, but I've heard Neil Ford cart this one out more than once. He said, in the future, not writing unit tests will be considered malpractice for software developers, will be considered <laughs> professional, you know, just, uh, I'm, I'm losing, I'm drawing a blank on the exact term, but you know what I'm saying. It's malpractice. It's, yeah. it's professional negligence. I think a lot of the things that we refer to as technical debt today will be viewed in that way as the industry matures. I was reading just this morning on, uh, Gosh, what was the guy's name? The the guy, the doctor back in the 1800s, Ignaz Simmelweis, introduced the idea that doctors should wash their hands. Right? He saw mortality rates with infants, you know, 12% at one hospital, 2% at another. The difference being over here, they handled cadavers and then went straight to deliver new babies. And big surprise, they got sick and died. One out of 10 babies. When he introduced the idea that people should wash their hands, which now we take for granted, was he hailed as a hero? No, he was fired. And eventually, <laughs> he, he was a pretty smart guy. He shut up about it. But apparently, some of his students and followers latched onto the idea, pushed it back out in public. And so, other doctors had him involuntarily committed to an insane asylum where he was then beaten to death. So, I, maybe we shouldn't push tech debt. No, I'm... <laughs> I think a lot of the things, for instance, in the early days of extreme programming, right, people talked about test first, test driven, and people were mocked for it, right? You're getting, you know, pairing, what? You're getting half the work at twice the money. I think as our industry matures, that 12% infant mortality rate is going to be similar to the project failure rate that we now view as normal. We look at Roughly, I mean, there's a, a number of different statistics, but long-term projects have a 50 to 90% failure rate when they're longer than a year. And we think that's normal. And there's so many good practices that a lot of us know. Heck, I'm, I'm as bad as anyone else. I know what we should do. I'll come in. I, t I jokingly tell my family my job is to come in, watch other people work, and criticize them. And, of course, then I come home and get mad when my teenage daughter does the same thing to me. But, you know, I'm not paying her. <laughs> I think a lot of us know what to do, and we simply choose not to do it. And it's okay because we're used to a 50 to 90% mortality rate. At some point, we have to step back and, and pull out the Einstein quote of doing the same thing we always did and expecting a different outcome is insanity. My, my doctor has a sign up in her uh, waiting room that says, hope is not a strategy. But how many times do we go into a planning meeting for a new product? And say, hey, everything we did last time, this was wrong, that's wrong, the other's wrong, but this time we'll do better. Yay, go team. What are we going to do? Same thing. But it'll work better this time. Why? Because we'll try harder. I'm ranting now, but you get the idea, right? We, 
we know a lot of the good practices that we should be doing. But as an industry, we're just not used to doing it. We're too insulted by the thought that we our hands might be dirty, so we're not going to wash them. I think that brings me to something I wanted to ask you about, and that is most of the things we've talked about so far are certainly applicable to any kind of software development. But for iOS in particular, I wonder what you see teams doing wrong, perhaps uh, more so. The reason I thought of that is because I think unit testing is still much less common among iOS developers than it is among some other people working in in other uh, languages and, and on other platforms. And so I'm curious about iOS-specific trouble that you see in terms of technical debt. I think you hit the, the biggest one right on the head. It's test automation. It's harder to do in iOS. The culture, I don't think it wasn't baked in at Apple early on. They seem to be making strides to catch up. But in the early days of iOS testing, the testing was hard. Uh, it was very difficult to do. And a lot of the developers who came from Ruby, who came from Java, who maybe had that bug in the past, came over and the impedance mismatch was so high they dropped the habit. I know very few iOS teams that have a good automated test suite and about as many that have a continuous integration system. Those are two areas where that side of the fence is just not where it needs to be. I agree with you. The team I work on, I'm actually really a Mac developer, but we have just a little bit of unit testing in some of the most critical parts of our code, but for the most part, we don't have any automated unit testing and Continuous integration is something we've struggled with for a long time. And it's not that you don't see the value. It's that the tooling doesn't make it easy. And that's just what it comes down to. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I sold my first program back in 91. And, you know, I was not, I was still in college at the time. But, I mean, I've been here, there, and yonder. Uh, I came up through Smalltalk, where the first unit framework came from, and moved over to Java, saw JUnit known about but not used. And then when Ruby came along, and when you generated a Rails project, Ruby on Rails project, it put testing stubs right in there. It's part of the default template. When you generate an empty project, the testing is already baked in. The command line tool Rake runs those tests. You have units, integration, the whole nine yards. Big surprise, you make it easier to do, and a lot more people did it. And a lot of the really good testing frameworks that we have in other language, uh, other ecosystems, are migrated from or direct copies of a lot of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails tools. In iOS, it wasn't baked in. It was harder to do, and we've lost a lot of those really good habits. And that's a, that's a hard problem to tackle. So that's kind of true, but kind of not true, because there is actually you know unit testing stuff baked into Xcode. It's just crappy. It's just that Apple don't really get how unit testing works because I suspect they they do less unit testing than well they maybe don't do less than the average iOS developer but they certainly do less than the average Java developer I would guess so I, I think I, I think it's partly it's a it is it comes down to a cultural thing but I I think the main challenge that we have and it's something that I think we're really the iOS community has has really evolved over the last few years on is is getting that culture of uh, of testing. I, I've, I'm really positive. I whine about it a lot and, and kind of slam Apple about it a lot, but I'm actually really positive that as we get a lot of people coming in from outside of the, the kind of the Apple bubble, they come in and they say, hey, how do I do testing in this environment? And someone says says them, oh, this is how you do it. And they say, well, that's crazy. Like, I just came from a place that's much better. Let me try and improve that. I think that it, it will improve over time, but I think we've got a long way to go. I think you're right. I've been doing 
uh, Objective-C development since before the iOS boom, and I, I really do think it's the tools have gotten better, even though Xcode has a long way to go. But it's because of I think it's mostly because of the influx of people that are coming from platforms where unit testing is really just ingrained in the culture, and so I hope that continues. Yeah, what I what I would love, love, love to see is for Apple to do. I see Apple as where Microsoft was in kind of the the mid mid nineties, maybe where there was lots of this stuff going on outside of the Microsoft ecosystem, and they started noticing and saying, "Oh, hey, look at that! People over there are doing ORMs. People over there are doing unit testing. We need to we need to get on that bandwagon." And so they built all of their own ORM systems, their own unit testing systems. And they weren't as good because they fundamentally didn't really understand a lot of how how to do that the best way. They didn't have those best practices, right? But eventually, I think Microsoft cottoned on and started embracing the community outside of them and bringing them in and kind of you know making it a bigger tent or whatever. What I would love to see is I would love to see Apple not building their own freaking CI server, but actually working on how to integrate things into all of the existing CI servers, right? We don't need another CI server. <laughs> to their credit, the one time I've ever seen a WWDC talk that wasn't just talking about Apple technology was the one where they it, they showed how to set up unit testing with a, a basic CI system with, with Jenkins. So maybe things are moving in the right direction. Think about the company you're talking about, though, right? From what I've heard from an outsider's view, I'm, I'm not a hardcore Objective-C or iOS program. Grammar. There were two groups within the company. One was pushing Ruby. One was pushing Objective C. And you know the open source versus the we we own our own language camp. One. It's going to be more difficult for them to look beyond that not invented here. And don't get me wrong, it seems to be working. But you're right; they could be using their time a lot more efficiently and a lot more effectively if they were picking those best of breed tools and just integrating them instead of starting from scratch. Which brings me around, you guys have a platform. You have this nifty little uh, podcast, right? You, you, Several people at work I know that are not iOS developers, I ask them about it, and they're like, oh yeah, iFreaks, I, I listen to them. But you have a platform. What can you guys do to help teach people how to do unit testing, uh, acceptance test-driven, integrate? I mean, is that something you could do a show on in the future? Yeah, probably. One thing that I've run into, though, with the podcast is that, I mean, we can talk about the benefits, and that works really well for the podcast, but uh, actually, like, teaching people how to do it, a lot of times that's a little bit trickier with just audio. So it, it becomes a lot easier when you have video where you can actually get in and say, look, here's how you write a unit test for this class or this view controller or this, you know, whatever and then, you know, turn around and here's how you write your integration test to make sure that it flows correctly and does the right thing. Well, I mean, I, I agree with that, Chuck, but I also think that there's a lot of kind of theory and there's a lot of discussion that you can have around the theory behind things yeah. and kind of the best practices for getting started. Because what I see a lot of teams do is they start off with great intentions and we're going to get set up with, uh, with CI, we're going to get set up with unit testing. But they take a few wrong turns, which, uh, you know, for, for those of us that have gone down those paths before is, is, are obvious, but then they're, they're not obviously wrong turns the first couple of times you make them. And then two weeks later or two months later, the, no one's bothering to run the CI anymore because the tests are too slow or the tests are hard to maintain, so they start deleting them. And all, all of these things that, you know, I see lots and lots of people do, and, it, and it's fine. It's kind of part of that learning curve of, of, of learning this. It's a really tough new skill to learn. 
I think there's lots there's lots of things we could talk about in terms of how to get started and, and what are obvious pitfalls and what are obvious what are ways to, to kind of slowly succeed rather than succeed fast for a while and then fail and then get burned and, and tell your friends in a year's time, oh yeah, I was at this company where we, we did unit testing and it was it was a total failure and I, it, it would never work in any situation. That's the thing yeah. that frustrates me. People who've tried and then managed to take a few wrong turns and then they, they become kind of proponents of, of cowboy coding because they managed to make a few mistakes. Well, yeah, don't, don't make it an intro to unit tests with this framework. Make it an experts panel to say, don't use this unit testing framework, use that one, don't use the built-in CI server, use Jenkins. You walk them down that path. That might work well in the podcast format. Yeah, definitely. And the thing that's interesting is that I think a lot of times we forget that learning to test is a lot like learning to program. And so we made it through the pitfalls when we learned how to write code. We learned, you know, we, we made it through more pitfalls when we learned Objective-C if it wasn't our first language, you know, and all of the different frameworks that are available in iOS. And so why should testing be any less difficult? That's a good point. That is a really good point. Yeah. Well, if somebody on the panel today wants to do this in a video format, one of the other things that I do that I didn't mention in the intro is I'm the, the video editor for the Pragmatic Programmers, and I'm always looking for new topics and new authors. I'd love to do a video presentation of your favorite unit testing toolkit, your best Objective-C uh, CI integration. Cool. Left field advertising pitch. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Snuck it in there. This is good. No, I think you guys could do a lot with a panel. It sounds like you've already got uh, a one guy who's uh, who's got the tall calf written. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Are there any other critical things that we haven't talked about yet re- relating to uh, technical debt, or credit card debt, or whatever you want to call it? One of the biggies that a lot of people are aware of, they'll recognize that something needs to be refactored or rewritten, and they won't ever get back to it. And that's just something that it's nice to mark. Right, even if it's just a comment in the code, you know, a to do that says, "Look at this algorithm. I think it's taking too long. Look at this method. It's got five exit points. I'd rather have one." It's it's just something that a lot of people don't really mark. They just notice that it's messy and then move on. Whereas if you put a little breadcrumb in the code, and then next week five other coworkers over the next maybe not the next week over the next month are in the same place and see it and agree with it and endorse it and and strengthen it then you know you've got a, a good candidate for when you are paying off that 10% per iteration. But all in all, I think we've covered a great deal of the uh, the material pretty well. Awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the picks then. Andrew, do you want to start us off? Uh, I think Pete really wants to go first. <laughs> Pete really, really wants to go first. <laughs> go ahead, Pete. You could have gone first. You've revealed that I was secretly lobbying. Okay, first pick is actually totally relevant to that last comment from Jared. So one of the one of the techniques that that we uh, we kind of normally bring to teams is this idea of a tech debt wall. So we like sticking lots of sticky notes everywhere. And one of the things we do is we set up a like one of those flip chart kind of stick on the wall flip charts and have two axes, kind of cost of not fixing it and the cost to fix it. Uh, and whenever we identify one of those kind of bits of tech debt either as we're creating it or as we discover it or as we're having a conversation, we'll write a little sticky note describing the tech debt and then kind of put it somewhere in that quadrant. So things that are really causing us a lot of pain but would be really expensive would kind of go up at the top right. Uh, things that are expensive to fix but aren't causing us that, that much pain go at the bottom right. 
And it's kind of obviously when you do have some spare cycles and you want to work on that tech debt or if you're doing one of these kind of 10% things, you have a good place to start. You start at the top left where the stuff the stuff that's going to have a big impact if you fix it, but it'll be pretty cheap to fix. It's interesting. I've, I've always wanted to do a stop motion video of these things over time. I kind of feel like watching the tech debt kind of waves come and go through a team is, would be an interesting visualization. But that's one trick. Uh, tech debt will a trick and a pick. And then my other pick, which is absolutely non-technical, is a clothing company in San Francisco called Beta Brand. They make really funny things. They make like bike-to-work pants that have pockets in the back that when you pull them out are reflective so that you don't get run over by cars. They make disco pants, which look like disco balls, but they are pants. They make an executive hoodie, which is a pinstriped uh, wool hoodie uh, that looks like a like a fancy suit jacket. So they're, they're just like kind of a fun fun company their website is really fun to browse around so um check them out i like them do you have some of the disco ball pants pete i'm wearing them right now (laughs) every day (laughs) no i don't have the disco ball pants but i do have the executive hoodie and uh i get great pleasure from it all right andrew what are your picks got two picks today the first is slack which is a a new web app for sort of team chat kind of it's it's like campfire or what was the other one that came out pretty recently? I can't remember, but um, they've done a really good job with a lot of features. You can have multiple channels and private messaging, and they've done a good job handling screenshots. And we're not using it at, at work, but I've been using it with some friends that, just to chat about development and have liked it a lot in the last couple of weeks. And then my second pick is Furbo.org. And this is Craig Hockenberry's blog. Craig is a developer at the Icon Factory. He's the guy who wrote Twitterific, among many other things. And his blog is one of the most consistently helpful blogs that I read. He's always posting really practical things to solve problems that he's spent a day debugging, that kind of thing. And those are my picks. Awesome. All right. As many of you know, I, I really enjoy uh, listening to audiobooks. I just finished one. It's called So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. And he basically talks about the passion hypothesis for finding a job that you love. It's really interesting the way that he uh, attacks the problem of finding a job that you love. And I really enjoyed it. I felt a little bit funny about it initially because he basically says looking for that job that you're passionate about is not the right way to approach finding a job that you love. But the thing is, is that the more I read the book, the more I realized that what he was talking about as far as how to find that job that you're passionate about really is the way that I got into doing what I love. And so I, I loved it. In the end, I really enjoyed the book. So you really can find the job that you love. It, it just takes a little bit of work and you have to do some of these things that he talks about. So um, I'm going to recommend that book. Another pick that I have, sometimes I have to run Windows on my Mac and I've really, really been liking um, Parallels. Um, it's just really handy way to go. So I'll put links to those in the show notes. Jared, what are your picks? I'll have to counter your Parallels with VirtualBox, which is a uh, open source and free virtualization tool. Came through, was purchased by Sun. Now it's Oracle. I like it a lot more than Parallels for for several different reasons. But I used to be a Parallels guy. But I'm all for virtualization. The other thing that I've gotten into lately is the Virtual currencies. Uh, Bitcoin's had a lot of drama lately. I'm actually kind of stuck on Dogecoins. So if you know the Dogecoin meme, someone, or Dodge meme, someone invented a coin in December as a joke that has uh, gotten a lot of traction and is one of the only coins that hasn't been fluctuating with all the Bitcoin drama. So just Google Dogecoin. There's some fun stuff there. I'm also, you mentioned audiobooks. Two of the ones that I've hit on recently 
that I liked were Stefan uh, Noteberg's Pomodoro Techniques of the Pragmatic Programmers and another one that just came out called The Healthy Programmer by Joe Kuttner. Uh, both were topics I thought I was fairly conversant in and, and both had a lot of information that, well, I, I didn't know. So it's good stuff. The last completely non-technical thing I've gotten into that I almost didn't bring but I thought you'd get a kick out of are our Jeeps. Not the new ones that, that look funny, but uh, anything on Craigslist. My daughter's 15 years old, and, and she bought an old beater Jeep last year that was in rough shape. And I've discovered the entire Jeep subculture. There are user groups, uh, parts shops. It's just a lot of fun to play with them. Awesome. Slightly, slightly non-technical there. <laughs> yeah, we interviewed Joe Kuttner about that book. Uh, it was a book club book for the Freelancer Show. So ah, I didn't realize that. So folks can go check that out. We'll we'll get a link to that in the show notes as well. But yeah, thanks for coming, Jared. Appreciate it. It's been a, a fun conversation. Yeah, appreciate you uh, taking the time to to spend with us. Thanks, thanks Jared. It's been great. Oh, I need to mention the book club book. We're reading Functional Reactive Programming on iOS by Ash Furrow, and we're going to be interviewing him on April first, which means that you, the listener, will get this about a week later. So go pick it up. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. And thanks for listening.